What's up? I'm just chilling. How are y'all doing tonight? Good? If you have your Bibles, we're in Nehemiah chapter 10. Nehemiah chapter 10. You know what are the two words that, as a kid, I used to say all the time that my parents hated me saying these two words? Do you know what it was? There's two words that kids say that parents just hate. That's just one word. Kids say two words in a row. It's these two words. It's this phrase. Can I? Maybe. No, it could be one. As a kid, when I was growing up, the two words that I would always say to my parents, and they hated, was I'm bored. Any of y'all used to say that a lot as a kid? Probably some of y'all still say that to this day, right? I'm bored. Some people enjoy boredom. Who enjoys being bored now? Well, when you're bored, like, hardly, I don't think that we live in a society that is usually boring anymore. We're usually on the go 24-7, right? We usually have stuff to do. But as a kid, you usually don't have that much stuff to do. You have homework, you have uh, chores maybe, you got video games. But eventually, as a kid, you would always say, I'm bored. Well, there was one time in my life that that, that uh, I, I got to the point to where I didn't want to say that anymore. Uh, I was in fifth grade. My brother, who is my best friend, had gotten married a year earlier. And my mom and dad were going out of town. And so I was going to stay at my brother and new sister-in-law's house for the week. I was so excited. My brother was my best friend. My brother had a PlayStation 2. I had an Xbox, but he had a PlayStation 2, and so we would sit there, and my whole thought was is that all week when I get home from school, me and my brother are going to sit there, and we're going to play Madden football all night long, and then we're going to go to bed. It wasn't like that, though, because my brother had a wife. He had obligations, and so he wasn't there to be my entertainment for the whole entire time we were there. Also, something awesome was going to be coming out in movie theaters while I was at my brother's house. The greatest, one of the greatest movies of all time, Holes, with Shia LaBeouf, was coming out in movie theaters. Not only was that one of the greatest movies of all time, it's also one of the greatest books of all time. So if you haven't read the book Holes, about, have any of y'all read it? Okay, it's great. It's based off a book. Stanley Yelnats was actually in a book. It's a really good book. It's a great movie. And so we were so excited. Remember there was that song that went along with it that was on Disney Channel? Digging up a pose, digging, digging it. Yeah, you remember? And Zero had, like, started rapping in it. Okay. But still, it was a great movie. So that was what was going on that week as well. And there was this moment, though, we went to go see the movie, and after the movie was done, there was this moment that as soon as the movie was over and as soon as we were leaving the movie theater, walking out of the movie theater, I asked my brother two words. No, it wasn't I'm bored. The two words were, what's next? What's next? I've played football. We've played Xbox or PlayStation all week. We have seen an amazing movie. You've done all this stuff with me. But, Tim, I want to know what's next. I was always wanting to do something after that. I thought I was going to be with my brother. I was going to have so much entertainment for a week. But he got upset when I asked what's next. 
and literally we went home and did nothing. So I was kind of bummed out about it. But here in this text in Nehemiah chapter 10, we're in a what's next moment. The past two chapters, we've seen this great revival come across uh, the Israelites and those in Jerusalem. They've made this covenant and they're coming now to this place that they've had this revival. They've seen this move of God and now they're wanting to just ask the question, what's next? I think we should ask that question sometimes even in our Christian life because usually when we do see a move of God in our lives, when we see uh, us repent of sin, when we turn from uh, hard times and we pursue the Lord, we have this great God moment in our lives. But what's next? What's next? Sometimes that's where we find difficulty is, is that we don't know what to do next after we have that God moment, after we do repent of sin, after we do get saved, after we return to the Lord. We don't know what to do next. See, the people of Israel had corporately returned to God. And the question I want us to, I want to ask ourselves as we look at this passage is what's next? What's next in your life? What's next in the life of this ministry? What's next in the life of this church? We should always be, yes, we want to stay in a moment and just soak what God's doing and soak it up and be a part of it. But all throughout Scripture, when God moved and he did great things, they never stayed in that place. They always moved on to something next and moved on from there. You can even look at the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus uh, showed himself in his full glory and he was there with uh, Peter, James, and John. And Peter, the loudmouth, spoke up after it was all over and said, dude, we need to stay here. We need to hang out. Let's build a temple. Let's build a just let's let's just hang out here because God just showed up mightily and I just saw Moses and Elijah. All these great things are happening. And Jesus said, No. Let's move on. Let's go away from here. So what's next? Tonight I have three things we should tell ourselves when we ask the question, what's next? I got one of those th fun, you know, three points in a poem messages, you know, like literally that's where I'm at tonight. So we got three points in a message, I mean, in, in a poem. The poem at the end is going to be awesome. But uh, the three things that we should tell ourselves when we ask the question, what's next? We should tell ourselves to be sticky. We should tell ourselves to be separate. We should tell ourselves to be serious. Be sticky, be separate, and be serious. Here in Nehemiah 10, we see that the covenant that they made with God has been sealed. We see that in verse 1. We see that it was sealed. And then after verse 1, up until verse 29, we see just a list of names, of names that were sealed on that 
document, the list of the people that signed that document, the list of those people were governors, they were leaders, they were leaders of tribes, they were people that represented all the people of Jerusalem. There wasn't enough, there wasn't enough room on this document for everyone to sign it, so they sent representatives to sign this covenant. After they signed this covenant, they went on and they made this declaration, which was basically what was inside the covenant. What was inside the covenant was two things, really, that they were going to do. They were going to separate themselves from Gentiles. And then they were going to not neglect the house of God. So the covenant went down to two things. It was separation, and then it was taking serious God's house. But when we first look at what we should do when we ask the question, what's next? First thing we should do is understand what we need to be sticky. We find that in verse 1. It says, on the seals. On the seals. They sealed the covenant, covenant that they made with God. They sealed it. Now, I think four or five chapters ago when we were talking about... Uh, the, the three, well, what were the three guys' names? The, you know, the enemies of Nehemiah. Anybody remember that? Sanballat, yeah, and Geshem, and all those guys. Wasn't Sanballat the one that sent a letter to Nehemiah and it wasn't sealed? It was. Sanballat sent a letter to Nehemiah, I think in chapter 5 or 6, and that letter was not sealed. Well, this is different. This is a sealed letter. A sealed letter, a sealed covenant, what it represented was that it represented their binding to God. They were bound to God. They bound, they, they were stuck, they were made close to God with that seal. When you ask the question, what's next, you should tell yourself, be sticky. Be close to God. Stick yourself to God through all of life situations. Stick close to Him. Hold fast to Him. Some people would be like, well, that's easy. It's easy to stay close to God. Well, you know what? It's easy to stay close to God when things are going well. It's easy to stay close to God, specifically when you're coming out of a great God moment in your life and you make these covenants with God. You make these promises with God. It's really, really, really easy to do that. But what happens when you are having a crappy day emotionally? What happens when you go through a break breakup? When things tend to go bad, when we struggle mentally, emotionally, psychologically, when things don't go our way, We have a tendency to quit. We have a tendency to give up. We have a tendency to just say, forget it, and let's move on. We live in a country that is, it is really easy to quit in. So easy to quit. I grew up as a generation, yes, I am a gamer, and yes, I play Madden and I play football games and basketball games. And I used to play franchise mode and Madden. And I always wanted to have an undefeated season. 
And whenever I was playing Madden, and I was like, it was like 03 Madden. It was Ray Lewis was on the cover. It was the year that the first time the Panthers ever went to the Super Bowl, and Jake DeLome was the quarterback, and Steven Davis was always like a 2,000-yard rusher for me in the game. But there was this time that I was playing the Vikings, and Mike Vick just tore me up in the game, and I was so mad. You know what I decided to do instead of losing? I quit the game. I quit the game. It's easy to quit. It's also, it's really easy to quit something when there isn't a financial obligation connected to it. So when things are going bad for you at church, within friendships, at school, it's easy to quit. Started when we were kids. Sports, guitar lessons. Any of y'all ever take guitar lessons and then after one lesson your finger hurt and so you decide I'm quitting? I took one guitar lesson with Steve, and I said, I'm done with this. My fingers hurt too much. I'm never coming back ever again. And, yeah, now I'm very upset at myself that I didn't learn how to play guitar. See, we are a nation of quitters. We quit jobs, schools, churches, relationships, friends, families, hobbies. Why? When things don't go our way, we leave. When things don't go our way, we leave. That's not the Jesus inside of you, because Jesus would never quit. Even Philippians, it tells us that he who began a good work in you will quit it? No. He who began a good work in you will finish it, will bring it to completion. See, the tendency to quit within us comes from our flesh. It's having a me mentality. So really what it comes down to is, is that, yes, we should be sticky. We should be close to God. And yes, we know that it's easy to be close to God when things are going well. But do you stay close to God when there's suffering involved? When there's a trial in your life? Sunday morning, we were in life group and Bible study, and we were in Romans chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, go to Romans 5, because I want us to read this. And if you want to put it up on the screen, Ted, you can. But read Romans 5, verses 2 through 5. And let's see if this is what truly being sticky is. Starting at verse 2, he says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith, into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our sufferings produce what? And endurance produces what? And character produces what? And hope does not put us to what? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Suffering produces endurance for the Christian. Suffering, this is the word, this was the big word that I wanted to use. It produces a stick to See, when God saves you, the type of salvation he gives you 
It's a Gorilla Glue Christianity. Some people would say Elmer's glue. No, Elmer's glue, have you ever messed with it? Eventually, it's going to rip. It's hard to rip Gorilla Glue. See, God has saved you for you not to quit the difficulty, but to endure it. See, and that's usually what happens next after the God moment in your life, the mountaintop experience in your life is a trial, is a temptation, is a testing. And when that testing comes, when that trial comes, are you going to be sticky? When suffering comes in your life, what is produced? Is apathy produced? Is struggle produced? Is reluctance produced? Or does suffering produce endurance and character and hope in your life? When suffering comes your way, stick to Jesus. Stay sticky. Stay bound to Him and to His Word. I love how Psalm 73 says it. Psalm 73 is this long psalm of Asaph where he just goes through and he talks about why in the world, God, do you let good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people? He's struggling. He's struggling with just understanding life. And then at the end of the psalm, he says this right here. Those who are far from you will perish. Those who are far from God will perish. You destroy all those that are unfaithful to you. But he says, but for me, it is good for me to be near to God. Be sticky. When you ask the question, what's next? Be sticky. Because what's next, more than likely, will be a trial and a testing of your faith. Not only do we see that we should be sticky, but secondly, we should also see that we need to be separate. We need to be separate. Go down to verses 28 through 31. So this is the obligations of their covenant. This is what they're going to do. All right? He says in verse 28, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who separated themselves, all those who separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse or an oath to walk in God's law that was given to Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. Verse 30, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops on the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. What does it mean to be separate? What's next? Be separate. Separate yourself from this world. What does it mean to be separate? It means to be totally devoted to God, no matter what the cost. 
We see it a lot. You know, uh, Peter talks about it. God says, be holy for I am holy. Holy is this idea of separation. Peter talks about it in First Peter that you need to be holy for, for God is holy. This, this separation. Separation has two parts. It has two parts. Who you separate from and who you separate to. For the Israelites, they were separating from the Gentiles and separating to God and to his people. They weren't doing this individually either. They were doing it together. One of the greatest examples of, I think, of this idea of separation and what it means for you to be totally devoted to God and be separate from this world. A great example, um, I'm going to talk about marriage a lot because I'm married and I think it's the greatest thing in the world. And my wife is awesome. But marriage is a great idea and a great thought and a great example of what separation is. Okay? When I married Erica... I separated myself from all other possible mates. All other possible options. I separated. Now, there weren't many options. All right. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. But all other options I separated myself from. And I, in response, committed myself completely to Erica. And Erica did the same for me. So here's the question, all right? I'll ask y'all this. My brother told me this one time, because have any of y'all ever had that thing to where, this may be for the guys in the room, but you thought that you could friend your friend zone your way into dating a girl? And you're like, hey, I'm going to be a friend. And then whenever I was friend zoned by a girl, my brother would call me and be like, Nate, I'm married. You know how many girls I have that are my friends? Zero. You know how many friends I have that are girls that I'm exclusively friends with them and I text them more than my wife or even text them at all? Zero. I am separated for one person that I love with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with I love her to death. I would do anything for her. That's this thought of separation. Separating yourself from all other options and committing to one person wholeheartedly. What makes this example of marriage so good is that your separation is motivated by love. See, and this is just, this is great advice for you as you're preparing for dating relationships and marriage is the fact that your love for your significant other should be the thing that separates you from every other woman or every other man that's on here, that's available. You should love them so much that you say, you know what, I'm not going to talk to that person anymore. In fact, I'm going to block them from my Instagram account. And I'm not going to see them. If they slide into my DMs, I am not going to respond to that. See, our separation from the things of this world should be motivated by love as well. If we are the bride of Christ, shouldn't we separate ourselves from the gods of this world and the things of this world? See, some people struggle 
with knowing what exactly is being separated from this world is and what it's not meaning. Some people think it's a certain thing and it's not. Like some people think it's this idea when it says be separate that we just need to totally isolate ourselves. It's not that. Some people think that it's like, uh, uh, well, that means that I don't need to uh, be around any sort of people or I need to I don't have any other friendships other than friendships with Christians. It's not either. I think we need to sit here and think a little bit about what, it, what being separate from the world is and what it isn't. Because we can get all janked up in our minds at what we think this is and what we don't think it is. So let's first of all think of what isn't, what does it not mean? Well, separation from this world does not mean isolation. See, separation that ignores God and ignores other believers isn't separation, but it's isolation. And isolation always leads to sin. Because you think you're by yourself. And you don't think anybody else is watching. And you think that you can get away with stuff. When we say be separate, we're not separating ourselves to isolation. But we're separating ourselves to people, to somebody. Separation also doesn't mean refusing to have any contact of any nature with an unbeliever. God has called us to live in this world and have relationships with unbelievers. What does that relationship with an unbeliever, when does that relationship with an unbeliever become a bad thing? When it's causing you to sin and pushing you away from God. So you're going to be in this world and you're not, there are going to be times where you're not going to be able to separate yourself to the extent of You're going to be in relationships and having friendships with those who aren't saved. But it becomes bad, becomes difficult when that relationship is causing you to sin and pushing you away from God. The third thing that separation isn't is physically separating from those who don't believe in Jesus. If you physically separate yourself from those who don't believe in Jesus, you won't be able to go anywhere. You won't be able to go to the grocery store. You won't be able to go to restaurants. Shoot, you won't even be able to go to church. That's not what it means. So what does it mean to be separated? When God tells us to be different, when God tells us to be holy as I am holy, when God tells us to to separate ourselves, what is this meaning of separation? Well, it's a couple things. First of all, it means that you're separating yourself from the sinful things of this world. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. says, you are... We'll start at verse 14, I'm sorry. Verse 13 says, you are the salt of the earth. And if the salt has lost its saltiness... What good is it? What good is it? It's not good at all. It needs to be thrown out. So God has given you the, the uh, responsibility of being the salt of 
the world. He's given you to be this seasoning that changes this world. But if you become like this world and you lose your saltiness, are you able to be salty anymore? Is the salt even worth something if it's lost its saltiness? No. So we do not, when we say separate, it's meaning separating ourselves from sinful things. Verse 14 in Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light all in the house. Called to be a light. God has given you that light. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. Rachel, we need to sing that song. Please, let's sing that song. I think Ted was here. Alvin used to sing that song in C modular. Brett, you remember that? I was like, goodness gracious, man. We're like 20, 21, 22, 23 years old, and I'm sitting here singing a kid's song. It was awesome, though. He did. He did. Alvin's the man. But anyways, it's saying here, you're the light of the world. It should not be kept under a basket. See, when you are acting like this world, when you are in within the sinful things of this world, you are no longer a light and you are no longer salt. So what this is meaning is, is that you need to be separating yourself from the sin of this world. Secondly, it's saying that we need to be acting different than this world. 1 Peter 2.9, okay? You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And I love how the King James says this. It says here, a people for his own possession. But the King James says, a peculiar people. Peculiar. You're different. You should act different than this world. It's what separation means. That is what was happening with these people in Nehemiah 10 is, is that they were going to act different than this world. They weren't going to let their children marry certain people. Now, to our extent, I don't think that we need to deal with that. There's something about being unequally yoked, but what this was dealing with, they were wanting to be different There's something about being different. Thirdly, we also see that being separate means not having close relations with immoral and ungodly people. Be ye not unequally yoked. You should not have such a close relationship with somebody that is not saved that instead of you influencing that person, they're influencing you. Because that's a lot of the times what people say when they are, um, whether it's missionary dating or you're just saying that, hey, man, I'm trying to reach this person for Jesus and I'm trying to show this person the love of Christ and I'm trying to witness to this person. Um, I've tried that some, and you know what usually happens in my life? When I was a young Christian and I was trying to influence those in my life that were not saved and that were pretty wicked people, I ended up doing the things that those wicked people were doing. That's straight up what happened in my life. 
Now, if you're strong in your faith and you're a leader and you have influence, yes, you have the ability to where you can influence people for the sake of Jesus Christ. But when they start influencing you instead of you influencing them, man, you need to get out of that as soon as possible. I'm sorry. I don't care how strong you are in Christ and the great and just such a solid foundation you have in the Word and how much of a Christian you are. If you are starting to become influenced by the, this world instead of you influencing this world, you're in a scary place. It, we need to be separate. There is something that is to be said about being different and how you act and how you speak. I know that I'm sounding like an old fogey or like your parents or something, but there is something for Christians to stand up and be different than this world. Whether it is within conversation, within how we act, we need to be different. See, we're called to minister to this world not to identify with this world. We're called to minister, not identify. We are to be separate enough for immorality and ungodliness that it doesn't influence us, and at the same time, be close enough that we can minister to those who are trapped in this world. We are to be separate enough for immorality and ungodliness that it does not influence us, and at the same time, be close enough that we can minister to those who are trapped in this world. It's a delicate balance. It is. And yes, we're called to share the gospel, and we're called to love others. And, and we, yeah, we see, we, we see the, uh, the accounts of Jesus and, and how he was the one that was hanging out with the drunkards, and he was the one that was hanging out with the prostitutes, and he was the one that was hanging out with the tax collectors and the least of these. And you know what? That's great, and that's what we're called to, and that's what Jesus did. You know what? I got Jesus living inside of me, and I'm not Jesus, though. There are things that Jesus did that I can't do. And yes, we're called to be influencers of this world. And we're called to be different. I'm telling you, there are some situations that you don't need to put yourself in because more than likely you're going to end up becoming like this world in those situations. Thirdly and finally, we are seen to be serious. Be serious. Be sticky. Be separate. Be serious. Verse 39. I love this verse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where their vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. Underline this. We will not neglect the house of our God. We will not neglect the house of our God. The final... uh, Seven to eight verses in this chapter, all it deals with are just things that they're setting up within the rebuilt temple. The, the phrase house of God is used nine times in this chapter. It refers to this temple that was restored that Ezra and Zerubbabel helped built in, Ez, in the book of Ezra. See, revival will cause you to have a renewed admiration for the house of God. 
Revival will cause you to have a renewed sense of a seriousness about church. So what's next? Have you ever asked yourself that? Take serious the things of God. Take serious the house of God. G. Campbell Morgan said it like this. He's a great preacher. Whereas the house of God today is no longer material, but spiritual, right? Okay, God doesn't dwell in a temple. God dwells inside his people, all right? Corinthians tells us that we are temples of the living God. You hear the joke where the dude came in and he was wearing the baseball hat. You remember back in the day when you couldn't wear a hat into the sanctuary? You know those days? Have any of y'all ever had to, any of y'all ever been told to, hey, take your hat off when you're in the sanctuary? I love wearing hats. I'm not wearing one tonight. But there's the joke that there's the one kid that said, hey, you know, I'm not taking off my house, my hat because I am the house of God or something. Have you all heard that joke before? I ruined it, so there's that. But the fact of the matter is, is that the house of God today is no longer material, but it's spiritual. Now, the material is still a very real symbol of the spiritual. When the church of God in any place, in any locality, is careless about the material place of assembly, the place of its worship and its work is a sign and evidence that its life is at a low ebb. So it's saying here, you can tell how serious people think of God by how they treat the church. The way we treat the gathering of God's people indicates what we think of God. The way that you treat church, right? The way that you treat church on Sunday morning, the way you treat it on Thursday, that indicates what you think of God. Real talk. Real talk. So if you're coming on a Sunday morning and you're falling asleep in the middle of church, man, you must think a lot of God. If you're coming into church on a Sunday morning or on a Thursday and you're constantly looking at your phone and you're not digging in God's word and, and being all the way there in service, that really shows you what you think of God. The way we treat the gathering of God's people indicates what we think of God. How are you in worship? How are you in church? When we take serious the house of God, it means that when you are in the house of God, you are all there. When we take serious the house of God, it means that when you're in the house of God, you're all there. You don't care about what's coming afterwards. You don't care what is going on outside of the walls of the church. You don't care what's going on tomorrow. You are all the way there, and you are intent in hearing from God. When we don't take serious our time in God's house, we can't expect to hear from Him. We can't expect Him to move. Some of you, you have conversations with people. They're like, man, I'm not feeling it. Uh, man, I'm struggling with my walk with the Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling in my quiet time. The question you ask, when was the last time you went to church? Or when you went to church, 
How were you there? Were you just waiting for it to be over? Like, golly, Nate, he just is going to speak all night. Can he just not shut up so we can go play volleyball? I've been there too. But we're in a place to where we need to take this seriously. When we take serious the house of God, it means that we're prioritizing things. Things that we should prioritize in taking this serious. And we should prioritize attendance. We should prioritize attendance. When we take serious the house of God, we prioritize the attendance of church. You shouldn't fit church into your schedule should be the first thing on your schedule. Like, ah, I may come on Sunday. I don't know, though. I thought about it. I may sleep in, though. Man, why don't we act like Psalm 22 when David says, hey, you know what? I was glad when they said to me, let's go to church. I was glad when they said, let's go into the house of the Lord. Man, when we take serious the things of God in His house, we will prioritize the attendance. When we take serious the house of God, it means that we are, this is a fun one, we're faithful in our giving. We're faithful in our giving. That is what Nehemiah 10, 32 through 39 are all about. It's all about giving. They gave four different tithes or four different offerings. One was a temple tax. The other was a wood offering. The other was an offering of first fruits. And the last one was just a straight up 10% tithe. When we take serious the house of God, it means we invest in its house. We invest in church. Have you invested in church? How much have you invested in your church? I think that's one of the reasons why it's so easy for millennials to leave a church and Gen Zers to leave church. They hardly have anything invested in it. They don't really care enough to invest in it, so you know what? They're going to move on to another one. How invested are you in your church? It means investing finances. It is important that you give. It is. Now, some of you are going to be like, man, I ain't got no money. That's awesome. If you don't have money, we're all, we're, okay, I'd say <laughs> overwhelmingly probably all of us are not the richest people in the world. And uh, I know that I'm not and that I uh, found out how expensive having a baby is and being married and all that fun stuff. But it doesn't mean that I didn't quit giving. Giving is an act of faith. Trust me. When you give, you'll make it. You will make it. Some of y'all are like, man, I got a car payment, insurance, phone bill, rent, groceries. Uh, I got uh, college loan. I got to pay off student loans. I got all this stuff, man. I don't have any room to tithe. Yes, you do. God will provide. 
I can give you story after story just in the past year within my life how God has provided for me and my family. And not one time did I tell Erica, no, we're going to cut back on our time. God blesses that. When we take serious the house of God, it means investing in it. Not only finances, but investing resources. You have talents and resources that can be used at church. You do. You can invest time. We need to take serious the house of God. So what's next? Maybe what's next is for you to be sticky, to stay close to God. Maybe what's next for you is to be separate from this world. Maybe what's next for you is to be, take serious the house of God. But no matter who it is, there's always a what's next. In 2007, I was introduced to one of what at the time I thought was the greatest rapper alive. Any of y'all like rap music? Am I the only one? Some? Yeah? Tim, you like rap music? Is it, is it like Slavic rap music? Russian? Dude, I want to listen to some of that stuff. I won't understand a word, but I'd just be like, that beat is dope. That's what I, exactly how I would say it. That beat is dope. 2007, I was introduced to a guy by the name of Lecrae. He was an awesome rapper. It was the first really, like, cool Christian rap that I was introduced to. It wasn't like Grits, you know, or Toby Mac. Uh, not any of that, like, corny rap music that you listen to in youth group. It was, like, really good Christian rap. I loved it. It was awesome. I went and saw him in concert at North Greenville University, and it was amazing. I lost my voice. I jumped up and down. I was part of the 116 click, reach records, all that fun stuff. It was great. I was like a diehard Lecrae fan. He, introduced, he, he, he uh, got this album that came out. It was called After the Music Stops. After the Music Stops. You would go to his concert, and they would literally be like a church service, man. They'd preach. They'd rap. They'd talk about really cool issues that you wouldn't hear rappers talk about. Like they talked about, uh, they had rap songs. It was literally like the Book of Romans, and they rapped the whole Book of Romans. Galatians, all, all this cool stuff. If you want to learn more about it, come talk to me. But this one song off this record called After the Music Stops, the title record, After the Music Stops, Lecrae dealt with an issue that he struggled with. Because he would go to these concerts, and he would stand out, and he would lead, and they would be awesome. God would move, people would get saved, lives would be changed. But he struggled with what's next. He struggled with that. He didn't know what was next. So he wrote his struggles in a song, and he had a, he had a hook on there that said this. After the show, after the set, after the music stops, What's next? Will there be fellowship, prayer, disciples? Will you even open your Bibles after the music stops? After it's over, after it's in, after the music stops, what's then? Will you understand that Christ is king? Or will you just like the words that we sing after the music stops? After we leave here, after this 
point in your life ends and you move on to another ministry or you, or God calls you somewhere else and, and, you, and you move on from this ministry, whatever that means, whatever the next step is for you in life. Some people it's marriage, some people it may be moving off somewhere else. I don't know what that is. But whatever comes next, what are you going to do? After the music stops, what's next? It's a question that we need to ask ourselves. What's next in our lives? Man, yeah, we've seen. We've rebuilt some things in our life. Man, yeah, God uh, helped me rebuild finances. God helped me rebuild uh, broken relationships in my life. Uh, God has sent revival in my life, and I'm pursuing him, and it's great. Yeah, but what's next? Because God's either going to take you into a storm. He's leading you through it. Or you're about to leave it. But what's next? And how are you going to respond to what's next? So in closing, I have some questions for us to reflect upon. What's next in your life? What does suffering produce in your life? Are you ministering to those in this world? Or are you being influenced by those in this world? And fourthly and finally, have you forsaken the house of God? What's next? 